Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us, oh, oh, how he loves us, how he loves us,
33 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Northside Baptist Church. We're thankful that you're here. While you're standing, take a moment and welcome those around you. All right, you may return to your seats and be seated. I want to welcome you once again to Northside Baptist Church. We're thankful that you are here to worship with us. If this is your first time or maybe your first time in a long time, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Thankful the Lord brought you here. We want to serve you, pray for you, encourage you any way that we can. If this is your first time, we would appreciate if you would let us know that. There's a couple ways you can do that. There's a QR code that you can scan inside the bulletin, or there's a connection card that you can fill out out there um, in the foyer. Multiple announcements, please pay attention to them. Uh, we have a building and grounds meeting at 3 o'clock today, so if you're on building and grounds, that is you. Come at 3 o'clock. Uh, ministry team leaders meeting. So we've done this two or three times. We do it about every six months. We look at the calendar, put some things on the calendar, so if you've been a part of that before and you're like, hey, does that include me? More than likely it does. So be here at 4 o'clock. We've got a shower next, um, next Sunday. Is that next Sunday? Yeah, next Sunday uh, for Eden and Colton. I want to pay attention to that. Calvita Pregnancy Services, you can bring those items uh, until next Sunday. So if you haven't brought those items, please do that. A lot of other announcements that are in the bulletin um, one is about our pastor staff appreciation lunch on October 1st. If you can help with that, bring some food, uh, please see Miss um, Robin and let her know um, how you can help for that. So we try at least once a month to recognize some of our mission ministry partners, people that our church is either supporting through prayer or supporting financially. Um, and one of those mission partners is something called Armed Forces Mission, and underneath that, what's called One Reason to Live. Um, and that was founded and is led by Lou Kuhn, Lou and his wife Sherry. Lou and Sherry were members here uh, for a while, and, and now he's pastoring a church uh, bivocationally. And so you, if you've been here for a while, you know Lou's story. 
Um, September is Suicide Prevention Month. Uh, if you know Lou, you know um, suicide is part of his story. He now has a heart to help those um, who are struggling with this. And so this is what Armed Forces Mission does. This is what One Reason to Live does. And so Lou couldn't be here this morning because he's preaching, but he did send a video. So check out this video, and then we'll have a time of prayer. September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, so I want to give a huge shout out to my dear brothers and sisters at Northside Baptist Church. It is because of your support that we're able to continue doing what we do. Uh, this summer, we rolled over the 26,000 mark on the number of people that have taken the Intervene Challenge, and uh, that's based on my work in conducting more than 2,000 suicide interventions. We continue to be actively engaged in that process, and one of the things that I would share with you, and you pray for me, is that I would continue to be faithful in sharing what God is putting on my heart concerning this epidemic that we find ourselves in. The reality is that the psychobabble is not helping. Um, the clinicians are doing what they can, but a lot of them are hamstrung and, and they can't uh, speak freely uh, on what the issue is. But as a chaplain, I have that privilege of sharing with people that hope is found in Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very clear that without hope, we perish and so we are seeing lives change because we're able to share with them the foundation for life and that's hope without hope we perish and and underneath that foundation there's always a footing and i call that footing today identity we're in an identity crisis as a country as people and i'm not just talking about gender identity i'm just talking about identity period we don't know who we are and when we don't know who we are our lives lack purpose so when we can help someone find purpose and know who they are in jesus christ that is a foundation that will keep them when all other uh, means or protocols are falling by the wayside and not helping them at all i've had many people that have shared with me that they had tried this protocol or that protocol but when they finally came to jesus christ they found a reason to live so there may be 13 reasons why a person would want to die in fact that was a netflix movie a few years ago but one reason to live will save a life and that reason is jesus christ so pray that i would continue to be faithful in sharing that word and that thousands more would be saved and that thousands more will be trained as we continue to do what god's called us to do thank you for being part of that thank you for blessing us god bless you and hopefully we'll see you again real soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Yeah. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just read in the Psalms about our hope that we have in you, Lord, through your love for us, through what you've done for us. But Lord, the reality is so many people are struggling, Lord, to find hope, to find purpose, to, to find meaning. Lord, just looking at some statistics earlier, Lord, the, the rate of suicide just continues to go up. The rate among veterans, suicide rate among veterans, Lord, seems to continue to just tick up. And Lord, it's heartbreaking. So many people, Father, feel hopeless, feel lost. As Lou said, struggling to find out who they are, struggling to find their purpose. Lord Jesus, in the gospel, we find our purpose. We find our hope. We find the very reason why, we're, why we were created and 
And what has happened to your creation is sin. But Jesus, you're the remedy for our sin. You're the remedy for our, our brokenness and our separation from you and our hopelessness. That in Christ, we can, we can have that hope. We've, we've been born alive. But Lord, we recognize that suicide isn't something just unbelieving lost people struggle with. But Father, even professing Christians struggle with this. Lord, we recognize, Lord, we can do all the training. We can put in all these laws. Lord, both are helpful and needed. But Lord, ultimately, it's only through the life transformational work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts and lives that things are changed. And so Lou's on the front line. Sherry's on the front lines, traveling, Lord, to, to train and to try to just be a light in the midst of the darkness. So we pray for them. We pray that you would strengthen them and give them good health and traveling mercies when Lou travels. I know he was in Chicago uh, earlier this week. And, Lord, he, he's doing all that he can. He's preaching the gospel Sunday mornings. Lord, just trying to be the light. Lord, may our churches continue to support him. Uh, Lord, help, help us to, to listen, to be available to people. Lord, help us to recognize, Lord, when the signs are there and maybe when they're not there, just by listening to people. Lord, just to step in that gap, to love them, to, to get them the help that they need. Lord, because life has value. All of life is precious. And, oh, God, if anyone in this room is struggling with suicidal thoughts, if anyone in this room is in a deep place, mentally, emotionally, Lord, may they just reach out for help. May they turn to you, but may they seek out a friend. Lord, be with them. Help them. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you stand? Let's continue to worship together.
Solid ground. When I think about.
kiddos are going to make their way to Children's Church, our three and fours, and then our kindergarten through second grade. Everybody else, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. So last week, if you were here, I focused for just a couple minutes on a verse in chapter 8. I talked about how some people just have a hard time with that verse and, and with this, this theme that you see sometimes in the Old Testament, um, called it Holy War. And so this morning we're going to look at Esther chapter 9, but we're going to use Esther chapter 9 to talk about something that I probably just wouldn't normally preach on just on a random Sunday. Um, and so full disclosure, I've been here three and a half years. You all by now know that when I preach, it's right around 30 minutes, give or take a minute or two maybe 28, maybe 32. I'm just letting you know you're probably looking at 40 minutes today. So if you get to 30 minutes and you're like, pastor's wrapping up, I'm probably not. I'm just going to, I already told the children's church folks, you're going to have them a little bit longer. I'm just trying to, sometimes when you have a, a pattern and you break that pattern, people aren't ready for it. So I'm just letting you know that I'm breaking that pattern uh, probably this morning. So um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come, uh, Lord, to what is a weighty weighty topic some things that we see in the old testament that lord maybe some people in this room struggle with quite frankly or or people outside of this room lord i know struggle with some of the things that we see trying to reconcile them trying to make sense of them so lord give us wisdom give us understanding lord i want to i want to clarify some things but lord ultimately at the end of the message lord just help us to understand father the truth of the scripture that we see it correctly and rightly, and not our interpretation, or what man so often does, just changing a couple things. So Lord, give us, give us wisdom, give me strength. Uh, Lord, just be with us today, in Jesus' name, amen. So we come to Esther chapter 9. The day's finally arrived. It's the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. We've been building up to this moment since chapter 3. Chapter 3, that was the first month of the calendar year for them. And so it's been all year long building up to this moment. And so we come to Esther chapter 9 and we read in verse 1, which is a summary verse. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. If you haven't been with us, that's the chapter 3. Haman, this evil man who's, who's now dead, sends out an edict with the king's approval that all Jews are to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. So when this edict, on this day when it goes out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hope to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. You expect one thing to happen, the odds are stacked against the Jewish folks, but in fact the reverse happens, the second edict does its job. The Jews are spared. Verses 2 through 17 summarize the events that happened on that day. The Jews and their enemies once again have a battle. They go to war. And the events of Esther 9 is what theologians call, in essence, holy war or divine war. It's God, in essence, warring against people. In this case, Israel, God's people, warring against their enemies. And ultimately, 
what Esther chapter 9 is, and I've already made the connection once and we'll do it again this morning, is it's the culmination of what King Saul failed to do to the Amalekites back in 1 Samuel. King Saul failed to do it. Now God's people has to do what Samuel failed to do. So this morning, I want to take this opportunity to look at chapter 9 briefly, and it's going to be brief, and then spend the rest of our time trying to understand this idea of holy war. Now let me make a clarification. I'm only making it once. If you don't listen now, you're going to miss it. I'm talking this morning about divine holy war. I'm not talking about war in general. I'm not a pacifist. I'm not, when I go through this, I'm not talking about war. If you serve this country, this has nothing to do with that war that you fought, those battles, nothing to do with that, all right? We're not talking about that. This is God's divine war ultimately against sin. That's ultimately what we're looking at. So, a lot of people struggle with this. How can a good God not only allow some of the things that we read about in the Old Testament, but how can a good God command that some of these things that we read about be done? You and I have to feel the weight of this. You have to. You may, in your mind, already have it reconciled, but you have to feel the weight of this. When God tells people to go into cities, and we saw this in Esther chapter 8, and he tells them to kill all the men and all the women and all the children, like that's weighty. There's gravity to that. You can't just blow that off because I'm telling you, there are people who struggle with that. Why would a good God command those things to be done? But before we get there, we got to we can't skip Esther chapter 9 altogether because it, it ties into this. So Esther chapter 9, three things I want you to notice, and we're going to go through this fast. Number one, this is self-defense. What the Jews do here is in self-defense. We've already seen the enemies of the Jews hope to gain the mastery over them. We've already seen they hated them. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Mordecai has been elevated. The people now see the king's right-hand man is a Jew. So many people are filled with fear, and therefore they're not going to attack the Jewish people now. Then we read in verse 3, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So the people in high places, they're now going to help the Jews. Verse 4, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Those who sought them harm. Those are their enemies. Those who hated them. So this is clear. The author wants you to know this is self-defense. The second edict allows the Jews to defend themselves. They've had months to prepare for it. And so the Jews get victory. Number two. Notice the number of those killed. The number of those killed. Verse 6. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So on the 13th day of Adar, at least 500 men in the citadel are killed. Then verse 7, 8, and 9. A bunch of names that I cannot pronounce, so I'm not going to. These are the 10 sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha. The 10 sons of Haman are killed. They die on this day, the enemy of the Jews, but they lay no hand on the plunder. 
Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now listen, Esther, for some reason, requests, in essence, another day of bloodshed. That some of the wicked people in the citadel were really frustrated with the king because he gave the Jews a way out, and so they decided, hey, Walther also doesn't defend her nor condemn her. He just tells us why. And this helps us to understand when we get into the feast next week a little bit more. So, there's another day, and on this day, 300 men, verse 15 tells us, in Susa, on the 14th day, are killed. Verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So what we have, day one, in the citadel, 500 men die. The next day, 300 men die. Ten sons of Haman are dead, and then 75,000 in all the provinces are killed. And this happens even though there was a second edict that the Jews could defend themselves. So imagine what would have happened had there not been this second edict. That number probably would have quadrupled the number of people who would have attacked the Jews. The Jews would have been annihilated. There was a plan to kill them all. So the second edict works. God's people are spared, and they fend off their enemies, and they're saved. And that leads to the third thing I want you to notice. There's three times. The author does it intentionally, and I think there's a reason why. Three times we read, verse 10, verse 15, verse 16, that the Jews took no plunder. The Jews took no plunder. They didn't take any of the stuff that belonged to the people who were killed. Now, that's interesting. Why? Because Mordecai and Esther's edict in chapter 8 allows for them to take the plunder. It allows for them to take the gold or the silver or whatever these people that they've killed had. So why don't they? I think there's two reasons. I think, number one, the Jews wanted it to be clear this was in self-defense, and they didn't do this to gain financially. None of them could say, well, the only reason Esther and Mordecai wrote the second edict is so you all could become richer. Nobody can claim that because they took nothing. But I think there's a second reason, and it ties in to holy war. Because one of the rules, and we'll see this, one of the rules for holy war is you are not to take the plunder. You are not to take those things which are to be devoted to destruction. And so if you have your Bibles, now we're going to transition to this idea of holy war. Go to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. Most of you in this room know this story. We have a song we sing about it. Joshua at the battle of Jericho. Like you can't just help but dance when you sing that song. It's so upbeat. For the first time in my life, because this sermon has been weighty, weighing on me this week, I got emotional multiple times in studying this week. We sing a song 
happily about an entire people being destroyed and killed. Like, we don't even think about it. Like, yeah, Joshua, like, slaughtered all these people. And, like, we're just singing it gleefully. Like, it's like, what, is, what are we doing, right? But, but listen, Joshua chapter 6, verse 18. But you, and you know the story, right? God's people are coming into the promised land for six days. They march around the wall one time each day. Seven days, they march around seven times. Trumpets blow, walls come tumbling down. Verse 18, these are the instructions for this day. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So there are certain things, devoted things, that they were to destroy, and God tells them what they are. Then verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction. This is where I want you to feel the weight of these words. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. So God has said, Israel, I'm going to give you this land. There's the people in the land, and here's what you're to do. You are to utterly devote them to destruction. All their stuff, the men, the women, the children, the babies, all of them. That word is haram, haram. Total destruction. Everything is devoted for annihilation. How can a good God command Israel to do that to these people? How can God allow this to happen? Now hear me. Some people, I read it this week in some chats that I was looking through. Some people, in moments like this in the Old Testament, use stories like this to deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They will say God's Word cannot be true. It cannot be without error. There has to be parts that are false, that are man-made and not God-written, because a good God would never command this to happen. Therefore, that's not true. We can't trust it. Therefore, there's other things in God's Word that can't be true, and we can't trust, and the inerrancy of Scripture for them falls apart. I want to try to answer that. To do that, two things. Number one, brief. The second thing is going to be the remainder of our time because it was helpful to me. Number one, you need to understand that what you have in Scripture is God's unfolding plan of redemption. I guess God could have, because he's God, he could have done Genesis 1 and 2, creation, Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, the curse, Genesis 4, Jesus comes, we're all saved, end of the story. But he doesn't do that. There's a reason God doesn't do that. It's unfolding. There are still things that we are waiting on God to do, like to send Jesus Christ back the second time. It's an unfolding plan of redemption. And the second thing that I think was very helpful to me to grasp this, to wrestle with this, to think through this that I'm going to share with you is a man by the name of, of Tremper Longman has written a book called Divine Warrior. Now listen, I have not read the entire book. He talks about this. I, I, I saw articles about it. I watched him teach on this. He tells us that in the scriptures what we see are five phases of holy war. Five phases or five stages. And hang with me this morning. Because you may in your mind think, hey, I'm not really concerned about this. But listen, you will encounter people who are. And this isn't just about people being destroyed. It's about our own lives. Like, how could a good God allow suffering? How could a good God allow me to go through this? So five phases. Number one, 
God fights for Israel against her enemies. God, the divine warrior, fights for Israel, his people, against her enemies. So go back to Genesis chapter 3. We could spend hours, days, weeks on this. We're going to do it in about 20 to 25 more minutes. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve sin against God. God, a holy God, pronounces curses upon uh, man, curses upon woman, and he curses the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, we read these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So what you have in Genesis 3.15 is a holy war between Satan and the seed of the woman. That there is this divine battle that's going to take place, right? The, the serpent will, will bruise the heel, but Jesus ultimately will crush the head of the serpent. And from this point forward, please understand what you see is God's war against sin, against evil, against Satan, and against death. That God is going to war against sin evil, Satan, and death. So when you come to Genesis chapter 6, because of the wickedness of man was great, when God, because he's just and right and holy, decides to pour out his wrath against sin through the flood in which everyone is destroyed outside of Noah and his family. Or you come to Genesis 19 when God rains down fire upon a city, Sodom and Gomorrah, because their sin was great. God is pouring out his wrath upon Sin. You see that in the Old Testament. God pouring out his wrath and his righteous judgment on sinners. But here's what you also see. God, by making a covenant with Israel, his people, he uses them as agents of his divine wrath. So God uses Israel to bring out his wrath upon ungodly, wicked nations. Why? Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3. God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you. Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. Salvation was never just for the Jews. The Gentiles are going to be brought in through Israel. I'm going to bless those who bless you. But listen to what he says. And him who dishonors you, I will what? Curse. Any nation that comes against my people, that seeks to dishonor my people, God in his holiness says, I will curse them. Then you go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. God is going to give Israel into the promised land. And listen to what he says. This is so important. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4. He says to his people, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that is the enemies, do not say in your heart it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Don't think for a moment, Israel, the reason you're in the promised land is because you're innocent and righteous and perfect. You're not. You're here 
because they're really wicked, and I'm going to use you to bring about judgment upon the wicked, godless nations. Then we go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 18. Here's some laws concerning warfare. Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to, here it is, complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. That they may not teach you, here's why, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Listen, Israel, you're my people. I've chosen you. I'm taking you to the promised land. You're going to be surrounded by a bunch of wicked people, and if they stay alive in their wickedness, they're going to corrupt you. So I'm going to use you to pour out judgment upon them so that you will not be like them. One example of this complete and utter destruction is Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. God, in taking Israel into the promised land, these are these godless people in their way, and God is going to use Israel to bring about his wrath upon Jericho and wipe out an entire people. Except Rahab, the who? The prostitute. Not Rahab the righteous, Rahab the prostitute. So God, in this destruction, spares Rahab. Why? Because of her faith. Because she trusted she hid the spies. She, she began to trust in the Lord, their God. And so God rewards because why? She was for God's people. She wasn't against them. She didn't turn them in. She blessed the people of God, and the Lord will bless her. But these other people, they're cursing them. Now, that comes back to Esther chapter 9. Why are God's people in the predicament that they're in in Esther chapter 9? Because of Haman, who is a descendant of King Agag, who is an Amalekite. We did this early on. Let's do it again. In Exodus 17, the Amalekites are the first group of people. When Israel is coming out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, the Amalekites are the first group of people who stands against God's people. What did God say? I'll bless those who bless you. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. They come against the people of God. So God says, hey, if you're against my people, you're an enemy to my people, then you're an enemy to me. So God says he's going to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 15, 3. Samuel says to King Saul, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Saul doesn't obey. Saul spares the king and Saul takes some of the, the, the plunder. Saul's 0 for 2. He disobeys God twice. He's stripped. The throne is taken from him. Samuel has to come in and do what Saul did not do. So what's happening in Esther chapter 9? Ultimately what's happening is Esther and Mordecai are left to do what King Saul failed to do. Had Saul obeyed, had Saul obeyed, the Amalekites would not exist. Haman would not exist. There never would have been an edict to kill, destroy, and annihilate the people of God. So Esther and Mordecai doing King Saul didn't do. They kill the sons, so the line can't continue. They take out the enemies, self-defense. They don't take the plunder. They're faithful to God. It is clear in the Old Testament 
that God fights for his people. And we're getting ready to move to points two and three are going to be much faster. One, four, and five are going to be longer. Two and three will be shorter. It is clear that when Israel is wiping out entire people, please hear me, this is not genocide. This is not an ethnic cleansing. This is not what Hitler sought to do to the Jews. This is not what many people sought to do to African Americans or other people of other nationalities. Like, this isn't that. Understand this. What God is doing to these nations is a sin cleansing. He is rightly judging sin, and he's doing it through his people, Israel. Why? God hates sin. God opposes sin. God will punish sin. Now, if you have a low view of sin, you have a problem with scriptures like this. If you think, ah, sin, not that big of a deal. God's just loving and kind. He's going to forgive all sin and live how you want to live, do what you want to do. Like, if sin isn't a big deal to you, then you have a problem with the holy God who judges sin. If you have a right understanding of sin, well, just hang on. We'll get there at the end of the message. Death seems harsh. I'll be honest, this seems harsh. I don't love it. I wish it wasn't here. But this is about God's holiness. God is holy, and he will judge sin, and he does it through Israel. But just keep reading. Because here's the second phase of divine war. That is, God fights against Israel when they are disobedient. God doesn't ignore Israel's sin. What comes on the heels of Joshua chapter 6? Let me tell you what comes on the heels if you're not familiar. Joshua chapter 7. Israel's just defeated Jericho, man. They were probably on a high, like, yeah, well, let's go. Let's go take the next city. So they go fight this next city, I, A-I, however you want to pronounce it. And they lose. They lose to this next much weaker, much smaller place. Joshua's distraught. He's tearing his clothes. He's falling on the earth. Like, Lord, why would you bring us in here just to have us lose? Everybody else is going to get word. And God, you're not going to get the glory and we're going to be defeated. You know why they lose? You know why people die? Because of one man. One man who disobeys God. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the, devoted, to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi. He said, don't take the things devoted for destruction. And one man thinks, I'm above God's law and rules. I'll take a little bit for me, and nobody will know. Oh, wait, God knows. And God's judgment is poured out upon Israel right here. And so what do they have to do? They have to take out Achan and his family. Why? Because God will pour out his wrath upon sin, and Achan and his family just sinned. You continue to read through the Old Testament. You see God's people, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, they're taken into captivity. They're taken out of their homes. Why? Because of their idolatry and their sin. Why are Esther and Mordecai in Persia to begin with? Because of the nation's sin. They begin to worship false gods, and so God says, okay, here comes judgment, here comes punishment. Now God's going to use these wicked nations to bring judgment to Israel. 
right? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. They're, they're, people die in the process. They're deported. They're taken out of their homes. So hear me. God sends his wrath upon his own people. In the Old Testament, he's pouring out his wrath upon nations. He pours out his wrath upon Israel for their sin and rebellion, which leads to phase number three. God gives hope for future reconciliation. In the midst of Israel's sin, in the midst of God's judgment upon Israel and people dying for their sin, God offers future hope, future reconciliation. God is saying over and over, I'm going to send the Messiah. He will defeat your oppressors. So you go to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to tell you this in like five seconds. You want to know more, talk to Mazdan. He taught through Daniel. He can tell you all you want to know. Right in Daniel 7, he speaks of the Son of Man, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So he's offering them this hope. In Ezekiel 36, foreshadowing, he talks about how he's going to give his people a new heart and a new spirit. That he's going to send the Messiah. The Messiah is going to do this, which leads us to number four. And this is where a lot of people have issues. Number four is this. Jesus Christ is the divine warrior who ends holy war on earth. Jesus, the divine warrior, ends holy war on earth. So people, wanting maybe to study the scriptures, say, listen, the God of the Old Testament, angry, wrathful, judgmental, God of the New Testament doesn't seem anything like that God. Like He's loving, and He's gracious, and He's merciful. So the God of the Old Testament must be different than the God of the New Testament. Or the God of the New Testament is now changed from the God of the Old Testament. Like, how do we reconcile that? I don't think you have to reconcile that. People say, well, Jesus, loving, kind, gracious, yes and amen. He spoke about forgiveness. He spoke about love, but he also spoke of God's righteousness. He spoke of wrath. He spoke of eternal destruction and damnation and separation from God. But why is there such a massive shift? Why is there an emphasis in the New Testament upon loving your enemies? Like, you don't seem very loving God in the Old Testament. Like, you're smiting their enemies. And now you're telling me I gotta love them? I'd much rather go just punch them in the face. Like, I want some, I want some Old Testament wrath, right? Why can't I just go attack my enemies? Why do I have to love? Why do I turn the other cheek? Why does there seem to be a shift? And the answer is simple. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is why there is a sudden what seems shift in how we deal with our enemies. Listen to Karen Jobes. She says, Jesus' death and resurrection provides the only basis for the cessation of holy war. And the infilling of the Holy Spirit provides the only power by which one may love one's enemies as oneself. And then she writes this, The vengeance due to us for our sins against others, and due to them for their sins against us, has been satisfied in Jesus' body on the cross. What God does is he wages a holy war, this time upon his son. All of God's wrath that was poured out upon Israel and upon the nations and should be poured out upon you and me is now in the cross poured out upon Jesus Christ. God's wrath for sin was poured out upon Jesus. And this is why we don't take matters into our own hands. This is why vengeance belongs to the Lord. Now, are there laws? Yes. Laws to promote good and stop the evil. 
Yes. Are there consequences for our decisions? Yes. But the reason why you don't get to punch the person in the face when they cuss you out is because of Jesus. The reason why you don't get to hold a grudge against somebody and say, hey, I will never forgive you is because of Jesus. Because hear me, when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies for your sins. But he also died for theirs. So when they hurt you, and they go to the Lord and they say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me. Guess what the Lord does? Forgives them. Removes their sin from them. So who are you and I to now hold that against them? See, Jesus changes everything. He changes our hearts. He changes the way that we now relate to one another. So yes, there's laws. Yes, there are consequences. But it's why you don't get to be a personal vigilante. It's because Jesus has already paid for their sins. And if they don't ever confess and repent, you know what's awaiting them? A whole lot more wrath than you could ever give them. God will settle their accounts. It's not for you and I to do. It's why we respond in love. But then there's number five. The coming day of Christ will destroy all evildoers. You know, those who speak about Jesus only as this loving God who will never judge sin, I don't think they ever get into Revelation. They must stop reading before they ever get to Revelation. Because here's what you and I are. We are living in a time between Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and his return. We're in between those. See, Jesus isn't coming just once. He's coming twice. He already came the first time. Took on flesh, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died upon the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he's coming again. And when he comes, listen to Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the, white, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of of lords god's wrath when jesus christ returns will be poured out upon his enemies those who have rejected him listen to what jesus says matthew 25 and you tell me if this is just a loving jesus who will never show wrath and anger against sin because he says in matthew 25 it talks about the son of man coming and separating the people from the right and the left like you separate sheep and goats to one he says come and inherit the kingdom to the other he says, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is coming. And if you know Jesus, what a glorious day that will be. But if you don't know Jesus, what a terrifying day that will be. Because hear me, you live in the present. You live in between Jesus' first coming and his second. You live in a day of grace. A day that every day that you have of life is a day that God is giving you an opportunity to believe upon his son, to turn from your sins, and to be saved so you can spend eternity with him. But when Jesus comes, there are no second chances. If you don't know Jesus, when he comes or when you die, you will only know the wrath of God. 
That's the future. We live in the present. So why don't we wage holy war today? Keep hanging with me. Because what Jesus does is he moves the location of the battlefield and he changes the type of weapons that we fight with. Jesus changes the battlefield to the cities like Jericho and Ai, and now the battlefield is your heart. That's where the battlefield is at. It's in the heart. This isn't a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. And Jesus also changes the weapons. That's why when Peter takes out the knife and the sword and tries to chop off this dude's ear, Jesus is like, no, because you don't fight with physical swords. Again, we're not talking about war. We're talking about divine, spiritual, holy war. You don't fight with those kind of weapons. Your weapon is the Word of God. Your weapon is you wrestle in prayer. Your weapon is you go forth declaring the good news of the gospel. You're, not, you're sent forth with the gospel and not the sword. So hear me. That's why we don't shoot abortion doctors. You've read stories of Christians who went and shot at abortion doctors. It's why we don't do that. It's why we don't force other people to worship Jesus. We're not going to, by gunpoint, force people to follow Jesus. That's why we don't do that. Now, now listen, we want laws. We want to pass laws that makes abortion harder. We want to pass laws that makes sex trafficking impossible. We want to pass those laws. But hear me, you know what will stop abortion, what will change sex trafficking, which will stop divorce? It's Jesus Christ changing hearts of people. That's where everything changes. That's the battlefield. And so we go to the Lord in prayer, and we fight on behalf of the people, and we go forth with the gospel, and we call people to repentance and to believe upon the name of Jesus. So here's how I want to end, and please hang with me, because this is important. So how? How can a good, loving God not only allow, but command people to be utterly destroyed? How can a good God allow suffering in your life? How can a good God allow your spouse to die or allow your child to die or allow you to be diagnosed with cancer? How can a good God allow death? How can a good God allow these, these tornadoes and hurricanes and all of these things that we see? How can God, a good God, ever send people to hell? Please follow me. Don't lose your attention now. I would argue we're asking the wrong question. We're asking the wrong question. The question we ought to be asking is this. How can a holy, righteous God ever show anyone grace, mercy, and love? Why does a holy and righteous God not send everyone to hell? He's holy. He's righteous. He's the creator. He's the judge. I'm not. Listen, no one in Scripture that dies is innocent. No one that ever dies is innocent. There are no such thing as innocent people because the reality is God would be absolutely just right now to rain down fire and kill everyone. Everyone who has rebelled against him, disobeyed him, every opportunity he's given for forgiveness, and we push him away and we shun him, God would be absolutely just to do that the last thing i deserve is his grace and his love and his mercy i deserve his holy wrath to be poured out on me right now what i deserve is for god to say aaron that's enough chances and i'm done that's what i deserve 
but God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved me, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The problem, the reason we have such a problem with this is because we do not elevate God's holiness. We de-emphasize God's holiness and we elevate our goodness. But when you see the majesty of a holy and righteous God and you feel the weight of your sinfulness, then and only then will you see your need for Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Only then will you know just how amazing God's grace truly is. Then and only then will you see the transformational work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And only then will you give yourself to going forth with the very gospel that saved and changed you. So how can a good, loving God judge sinners and send them to hell? Because He is holy. How can a holy, righteous God ever show you grace and love and mercy and ever give you a blessing on this planet earth it is all because of jesus it's all because of jesus and the good news church is this the holy war has already been won jesus christ has defeated sin he has defeated satan he has defeated death you my brother and my sister you visitor can walk in the victorious name of jesus christ because he is one and he is alive this morning there is victory over every battle there is deliverance from every sin there is freedom from every addiction god is absolutely just and holy and righteous and he is loving and kind and good And that victory only comes through the name of Jesus Christ. So rest in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, God, these these things are are weighty. They're, They're deep. They're heavy. And so, Lord, we turn to you. Lord, we talked big picture this morning about some of the things that we see in the Old Testament. But, Lord, for most of us, that's that's a long time ago. God, for us, the issue is more personal. God, how could you allow me to suffer? God, why am I suffering? God, do you love me? Do you care about me? Have you abandoned me? I mean, God, if you're good, why am I a widow? If you're good, why am I grieving the loss of a child? If you're good, why do I have cancer? If you're good, Why did I lose my job? If you're good, why is my marriage falling apart? God, we're so often quick to blame you. God, we recognize this morning that you are holy and just and righteous, and we just bow before that. We we submit to that. But God, we also do recognize you are good and that you can take that which is meant for evil and you can use it for good because that's the kind of God that you are. So, Lord, whatever our personal struggle is, Lord, if we're blaming you for something or we just, we're holding something against you, Lord, may we just lay that down today and recognize, God, what we deserve is not a marriage and children and health and a country and a home and cars and clothing. We don't deserve any of that. 
That is all a good gift that comes from your hands, and we certainly don't deserve an eternal salvation with Jesus. We deserve hell. So, as one of my brothers in my previous church used to always say, when people asked him how he was doing, he would always say, I am better than I deserve. God, everyone in this room right now is better than they deserve. So help us to walk in those two truths, that you are holy and righteous and you are good and loving, and may we trust you. Lord, as we sing, yet not I, but Christ through me, may you be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's just worship together. However the Lord spoke to you and worked in your heart, let's just worship together. Would you stand and let's sing. I know he will. 
coming again. And when he comes, he will separate us from the right and his left. The reality this morning is you are either in the family of God under the blood of Jesus Christ or in your sin you are an enemy of God. Where are you? And if you're an enemy of God in your sin, will you please before you leave, see Pastor Gary, see me, and just say how can I know this Jesus that you speak of. How can I know His forgiveness and His love and His grace? Don't leave here under the wrath of God. Leave here knowing you plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Please, if you don't know Jesus, will you give your life to Jesus? David, will you come? You're the deacon of the week. Will you pray for us? You're going to do it right there. David is going to pray there. Come back tonight for our evening activities. <laughs> 